While the Beatles tell us all we need is love, it might be more accurate to say that all we need is friendship. We hear from sociologist Angel Adams Parham on the importance of civic friendship to healing polarization. After the music. Welcome to the Upwards Podcast, an initiative of Upper House on the campus of the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Through meaningful conversations, we explore the life of the mind and questions of the soul to enrich our university, our community, and the church. Be sure to subscribe and give us a rating on your preferred podcast service and check out our upcoming events at upperhouse.org. Hello, and welcome back to Upwards. I'm Dan, your host. It isn't much of an insight to observe that today we live in polarizing times. But what's the solution? Could it be friendship? That's what this episode's guest proposes. We're listening in on a recent talk delivered at Upper House by sociologist Angel Adams Parham, titled Civic Friendship and Christian Faith in Polarized Times. While it might sound trite to say that all we need is friendship, Angel challenges us to engage with a tradition of thinking about civic or political friendship stretching from ancient Greek philosopher Aristotle to contemporary political theorist Danielle Allen. Angel asks each of us to explore intellectual and spiritual topics in the context of friendship and community. Angel Adams Parham is Associate Professor of Sociology and Senior Fellow at the Institute for Advanced Studies and Culture at the University of Virginia. In July, she co-authored with Annika Prather, The Black Intellectual Tradition, Reading Freedom in Classical Literature. I'm happy now to share with you this Upper House talk by Angel Adams Parham. So thank you so much um, for the invitation. It is truly an honor and a pleasure to be here. So I'll be speaking with you on the idea of civic friendship and Christian faith in polarized times. We see the polarization in our community. On one side, Black Lives Matter declares, this is the watershed moment that has brought the world to its knees. This is the moment for liberation. We saw with our own eyes the oppression, no inclusion. We are dying. The pain everywhere, every day. We fall to our knees. We can't breathe. But we rise up, using our voices. In cities, in every state across America and across the world, we say, Black Lives Matter. These are powerful, stirring words that launch a cry for justice. But in response, others answer, that Black Lives Matter has it wrong. We should really focus on the fact that all lives matter and that blue lives matter. Somehow, ironically, in all this talk of who matters, we seem to have ceased caring about each other, truly, right? Um, and that these ideas are launched as if, as if they are barricades that separate us and that they are all mutually exclusive. We see the polarization in our schools. On the one side, the 1619 Project declares, our democracy's founding ideals were false when they were written. Black Americans have fought to make them true. But then on the other hand, the 1776 Commission says, in the course of human events, there have always been those who deny or reject human freedom, but Americans will never falter in defending the fundamental truths of human liberty proclaimed on July 4th, 1776. We will we must always hold these truths. 
The result of these educational controversies has been an all-out political battle over local school boards and curricula where critical race theory, like some kind of Loch Ness monster, appears to be at once both elusive and omnipresent, depending on your perspective. So, how exactly are we meant to move forward together when we are so separated, and how do we respond to this as Christians during this very difficult time? So, I have come to this surprising conclusion that what we need is friendship. Hmm. Well, we can all go home then. Friendship will solve it all. Um, so I'm going to tell you, though, how I came to this, because um, it was about 10 years ago that I was introduced to the work of Danielle Allen, who is an absolutely brilliant political theorist at Harvard. She's also African-American. I had the pleasure of working with her when I was on sabbatical in Princeton for a year. And she has a book called uh, Talking to Strangers, Anxieties of Citizenship Since Brown v. Board of Education. All right. And so here, she builds on the work of Aristotle and his Nicomachean Ethics and the idea of civic friendship or political friendship. And when I first read it, I kind of scratched my head. I said, friendship? What is that? So she diagnoses um, a severe case of racial distrust in the United States. And then she says that civic friendship is what we need to address this racial distrust. And I thought, you know, friendship, that, that just doesn't, what does that really mean? Are you going to be friends with 300 million people plus? Like, what, what is that talking about? All right, so that was about 10 years ago. So I put it on the back burner. But this friendship thing kept coming back in various guises. So when I was doing the work on the, on the book that um, just came out this summer, I was reading Martin Luther King Jr. He's part of um, one of my chapters in the book. And I get to this sentence where he talks about, in the midst of this incredible strife and violence, the goal of turning enemies into friends. I thought, that's interesting. Okay, so I kept reading, do my work. I come to my work on Anna Julia Cooper, who's also a 19th century black intellectual. And although she doesn't use the term friendship, she describes something very close to Aristotle's conception of civic friendship. Um, and part of what she is talking about is that post-emancipation in this situation of, you know, extreme kind of racial antagonism, that she fears that white Americans um, are thinking that black Americans want to be their closest bosom buddies. She's saying, in fact, that's not what we're after, you know. Um, and what she describes is something more like civic friendship. So a way of being with others that you are in political community with that allows you to live together well, as opposed to a more intimate kind of friendship. So two different kinds of friendship. So this then was all reinforced in 2020 when I was working on the book, and I'm looking at the landscape. 2020 was a kind of a hard time. Um, and I'm thinking, this political friendship or this civic friendship keeps coming back over and over again. And I think to myself, I wonder if I need to reconsider my sociological metaphors. Um, we had a primer yesterday on metaphors and needing to overcome some of them. And so I was thinking, you know, maybe, maybe there's something in the way that I've been trained that makes it very hard for me to think in terms of civic friendship, because I really liked the work of Daniel Allen. So I finally really went to the Nicomachean Ethics and immersed myself in it, um, and have been very, very convinced by the case made by Aristotle 
millennia ago, and by Daniel Allen today, and all of these writers in between. And so I want to share that with you, and you can tell me if you are convinced or not. So back to metaphors and metaphors that matter. So going back to my sociological training, one of the things that has motivated sociologists and that helped to really kick the discipline off was this question about social solidarity. So the transition from a more traditional society to a very urban industrial society, the big question was, how are we going to help it all hang together? It's a question of social solidarity. And we're still dealing with issues of social solidarity, but in a very different way, in a different context. So the sociological metaphors, Emile Durkheim talked about um, the contrast between mechanical and organic solidarity. So mechanical solidarity is this idea that people kind of share these, this traditional culture, and so the solidarity is based on something that's mechanical or automatic, right? And then he contrasts that with organic solidarity for this new time of the Industrial Revolution and urbanization. So you don't have that mechanical solidarity, but what you do have is society working like a big organism. So parts of it are the hands, parts of it are the feet, parts of it are the head. And so that is the metaphor, is an organic metaphor. And you have others that are making similar kinds of arguments. More recently, if we skip ahead to some recent sociologists, you have Robert Bella in Habits of the Heart, who talks about the idea of Traditions of civic republicanism and biblical tradition might be something that we could draw on to have some sense of social solidarity. And then you have Robert Putnam, and he talks about social capital. And so capital is the metaphor, and so it's this kind of economistic metaphor that our relationships function as capital that helps us to get ahead. So you've got this bonding social capital with people who are like you, who nurture you, and then you have this bridging social capital with people who are very different from you, but who help you get ahead in the world, right? So these different kinds of metaphors, mechanisms, organisms, um, social capital, and so on. So while I'm very grateful for my sociological training, I have over the years sensed huge gaps in sociological thinking that I think can best be addressed by reconnecting sociology to its classical roots. Um, so after all, the very earliest sociological thinkers were classically educated. When sociologists talk about classical sociological theory, they're talking about the 19th century. Um, but the classics that I'm talking about go back millennia. So I started to think more and more, there's something missing here. Um, and I think these metaphors are symptomatic of something that is missing. So as I thought about this, I said, you know, even though a lot has changed in the world, human nature has not changed very much, if at all, since antiquity. And so maybe there is something there in those older readings that we might want to rescue and mine for what is ailing us today in terms of thinking about social solidarity and go back further than the 19th century. And so Aristotle's concept of civic friendship is something that I think is worth reinvestigating and thinking about for today. So how and why does this friendship metaphor matter? Because it took me about a decade to become convinced that it was important and that it was something that I needed to revisit. So as I reflect on this question, the primary words that come to mind are visceral experience. The difference between the friend and the organism lie in our visceral responses to each. While shared language, association, social capital are all important to our social life, they are quite abstract. On the other hand, a friend is living and breathing, 
She has physical presence, an ethos, a look, even a certain smell. She's not just a human being, she is an enfleshed being with emotions, feelings, which evokes in me a certain series of reciprocal feelings, emotions, and desires. So when I say desire here, I mean longings and hopes to be understood, loved, and committed to as friends. This desire and longing for long-term relationship brings joy through the ups and downs of life. So Aristotle explains this um, in our more common everyday sense of friend, not civic friendship, but just everyday friendship. And he says, the very presence of friends is pleasant in prosperity and adversity alike. Grief is lightened by the sympathy of friends and the consciousness of their sympathy lessens the pain. In prosperity, on the other hand, the presence of one's friends enables one to pass the time agreeably and also to enjoy the reflection that they take pleasure in one's good fortune. So who would not want to partake in such a beautiful communion with intimate others? The metaphor of friendship, even at the more abstracted level of civic friendship and a polity, puts flesh back on the experience of what it means to live in relationship with others and to sustain a common life. It brings back the affective reality that we experience love and hate, coldness and desire, hope and despair that are mediated by our lives and relationship with others. And it's this regulation of our deepest hopes, desires, aggravations, and even anger that are most in need of fine-tuning in our current political context. Cultivating civic friendship is real work, and it is work that recognizes the significance of our visceral reactions, both pleasurable and antagonistic, to others and to the other. Moreover, Aristotle cautions us that the attempt at civic friendship will only work between good people. There's a lot to unpack in this idea of good people, right? You might think, well, we might as well hang it up now. Um, <laughs> if we're relying on good people, this is never going to happen. Well, I want us to think a little more deeply about what he might mean by good people. Um, so at this time, in the, the context within which he is writing, the idea of goodness and the good life was something that is quite different than I think what we think about it today. So you were considered to be leading a good or happy life if you were striving to live a life of virtue. And virtue did not mean that you were, you know, Mother Teresa, that you were saintly. It meant that you were striving to hit this golden mean between extremes. So for instance, courage is a virtue that is the golden mean between cowardice on the one hand and reckless um, endangerment of the self on the other hand. So you're living that virtue if you hit that mean right in the middle. We take hope as a virtue. On one hand, you would have despair as an extreme, and on the other hand, you would have um, groundless optimism. There's no reason to be optimistic, but you have this groundless optimism. Hope would be that mean right in the middle. So if you're striving to live a virtuous or a good life, that is what you are striving after. Now, I still think that this idea of kind of categorically good people and categorically bad people is something that, as Christians, we would have to interrogate, and I will. So what I'll do is, after I lay some more of this groundwork with Aristotle, I'll bring in Martin Luther King Jr.'s thought, and his, he brings the idea of agape love to civic friendship in a way that I think will be very, very helpful for our purposes. So... For now, though, we're going to stick with Aristotle and assume that there are good people and bad people, and in order to have civic friendship and concord and the polity, you must be working with good people. That means that there must be bad people, right? Um, so, assuming this, taking Aristotle at his word, 
who could these bad people be today? So I don't know if they're absolutely innately bad, but I'm going to identify some people I think are maybe at the very least acting in bad faith. All right. So he characterizes these people as they're unable to have concord, they are kind of shiftless um, in their commitments, and they're always after more than they should have. So there is a subset, I think, amongst us who cynically manipulate the darkest sides of human nature to their own purposes. Okay, cynically manipulate, not by mistake, you know, not because they misspoke, but cynically try to do that. And I'm going to give some examples um, from the film The Social Dilemma, who many of you may have seen this film. Um, absolutely amazing. It pulls the curtain back from a kind of puppet show um, that is happening with uh, big tech. So these are basically refugees from Google, LinkedIn, Facebook, and so on, who are telling us this is what is going on, and this is how you're being manipulated in a very straightforward, cynical way. So for instance, um, one of them talks about Wikipedia. So if you go onto Wikipedia and you take an, uh, an entrance, an, an entry, you are going to see the same thing that someone across the world sees. That is, the entry is going to give you the same background. But if you do a Google search, that is not going to be the case. So for instance, the example that they give is climate change. If you type in your Google search, climate change is, you will see different results. So depending on where you live, it might autocomplete as climate change is a hoax. Or if you live somewhere else, it might autofill as climate change is destroying our natural environment. Um, and it only has to do with where you are and or what kinds of search history you have so that Google thinks this is what you want. So it has nothing to do with truth. So the first problem um, is that people who are acting in bad faith have given up on truth and have decided to use other ways of getting at us to manipulate us. Okay, so that's the first step. That then leads to the second step of setting people against each other, right? So I'm here Googling climate change is, and it autofills as hoax. See, I knew it was a hoax. Um, you know, that's what pops up. What's wrong with those crazy people over there who keep saying it's real? But of course, you're not seeing the same results because it's all been manufactured for you to see what they think you want to see. And so it begins to set people against each other as they get into their little silos and everything is reinforced. Third part of this bad acting is that this then is monetized. Okay, so here's what um, a worker, a former worker at YouTube says. At YouTube, I was working on YouTube recommendations. It worries me that an algorithm that I worked on is actually increasing polarization in society. But from the point of view of watch time, this polarization is extremely efficient at keeping people online, right? Um, and so that is what brings in the ad dollars, is having the eyeballs there. And so people stay more when they are angry, when they are afraid, when they are inflamed. And so that helps to make the money. So when I talk about bad actors, that's what I'm talking about. It's a kind of very cynical, knowing manipulation that leads to people tearing themselves apart and tearing the society apart. So that's the closest I think that we can get to something like what Aristotle is talking about in terms of bad people. But I'm going to come back to that later.
So there's a final um, criterion that Aristotle puts on this idea of civic friendship, and it is that it has to be done at a relatively small scale, and so he suggests about 100,000 people, that he can't really imagine that you're going to cultivate this kind of civic friendship in anything much larger than 100,000 people. So for our purposes today, we might think about a five to 10 mile radius, depending on how dense where you live is. In her book, um, Talking to Strangers, Danielle Allen at that time was at the University of Chicago, and so she talked about you know, a certain radius around the University of Chicago where she was, that she was going to take special care to cultivate relationships there in terms of civic friendship. So to summarize, according to Aristotle, you need good people to cultivate civic friendship. Um, I also left out that he says it's very crucial that these good people be committed to justice. Um, you cannot cultivate civic friendship with bad people, and it has to be within a relatively small radius and a small number of people that you're going to practice this civic friendship. All right, so that's all a kind of rather abstract foundation. So I want to move us toward the thought of Martin Luther King Jr., who was one of these people along my journey who really began to turn the tide for me in terms of friendship as being a viable option for something to cultivate in terms of our racial strife. So he is writing at a time that is much more like our own, in fact, arguably much worse than our own, in terms of the kind of racial enmity that is going on. So I figure if he can recommend friendship and turning enemies into friends at that time, I can't imagine that it wouldn't work today in our time. So in his speech, Facing the Challenge of a New World, this was delivered in December 1956, so this is the um, Montgomery bus boycott is just wrapping up. It's two years after Brown v. Board of Education legally dismantles um, segregation. Southern states are still dragging their feet on desegregation. So that sets some of the, the context for what is happening. In the midst of this suffering and struggle, however, Martin Luther King is very clear with his followers that even though the protest and the struggle for justice is absolutely central, it is not the aim. The aim is not to be in a continual cycle of protest. Rather, he writes, um, it is reconciliation and the beloved community. He says, when this is our goal, quote, this type of love can transform opposers into friends. It is this love which will bring about miracles in the hearts of men. So in the face of police violence, brutal lynchings, a pervasive climate of racial terror, being spit upon, reviled, his family and his own life threatened, King is talking about turning enemies into friends. It seems unbelievable. If we didn't know better, we would think maybe he's somewhat naive. But we know better. We know who he is. We know what he accomplished. And we also know that he did not passively accept injustice, right? Um, I submit that his goal of turning enemies into friends combined aspects of Aristotle's civic friendship with a higher, more demanding practice of agape-based friendship. The threads of civic friendship are recognizable in that he's calling to transform enemies into friend, to turn enmity into goodwill. This is the first part of what Aristotle's talking about, is that you've got to get people um, away from being enemies into being friends. But he also, King also emphasizes justice, which is part of what Aristotle says is necessary. You can't have friendship without justice. So when King calls his followers to the task of addressing injustice, he cites Greek philosopher Heraclitus. Long ago, the Greek philosopher Heraclitus argued that justice emerges from the strife of opposites. Whenever there is the emergence of the new, we confront the recalcitrance of the old. 
So the tensions which we witness in the world today are indicative of the fact that a new world order is being born and an old order is passing away. So justice emerges from the strife of opposites and a new world order is being born. Thus, turning enemies into friends does not mean being quiescent. It does not mean turning a blind eye to injustice or going along to get along. We must confront injustice and stand up for what is right, otherwise there can be no goodwill and no foundation for civic friendship. But Aristotle insisted on this distinction between good and bad people. The difference with King um, is that rather than this kind of categorical difference between good and bad people, he identifies goodness and badness, darkness and light in all of us and emphasizes that what we're trying to do, the extra work of agape-based friendship is to look into the eyes of the other, into the eyes of the person who is perhaps even your mortal enemy, and to work very hard to see where there is good there and to cultivate that and push them more toward good and more toward light and away from darkness. He has some really lovely analogies he uses when he does this. For instance, he says, whenever you set out to build a creative temple, wherever, whatever it may be, you must face the fact that there is a tension at the heart of the universe between good and evil. Hinduism refers to it as a struggle between illusion and reality. Platonic philosophy used to refer to it as tension between body and soul. Zoroastrianism, a religion of old, used to refer to it as a tension between the god of light and the god of darkness. Traditional Judaism and Christianity refer to it as a tension between God and Satan. Whatever you call it, there is a struggle in the universe between good and evil. We end up having to cry out with Ovid, the Latin poet, I see and approve the better things of life, but the evil things I do. We end up having to agree with Plato that the human personality is like a charioteer, with two headstrong horses wanting to go in different directions. Or sometimes we even have to end up crying out with St. Augustine, as he said in his confessions, Lord, make me pure, but not yet. We could end up crying out with the Apostle Paul, the good that I would, I do not, and the evil that I would not, that I do. And he goes on and on and on. So that's not an issue of distinguishing between good and bad people. But the extra task for the believer, um, cultivating agopic love toward these others and working to transform them into friends, is to look precisely into that person who gets on your nerves the most and to see where that goodness is and to pull them more toward the goodness and more toward the light, rather than what the bad actors do, which is to push them over the precipice toward the darkness. All of this has to be done with an extra dose of humility and grace. Humility and grace seem to be in very, very short supply these days. It requires what we can think of as gracious listening. And this is something that I'm very thankful to my sociological training for. Part of what we're trained to do is to try to understand the other person on their terms, whether or not we agree with them, whether or not they're doing something egregious. What we're trying to understand is on their terms, how are they making sense of it? How do they see the world, whether or not I agree with them? In fact, the more I disagree with them, the more I need to stand back and listen so I can really understand what is it that's driving them? What is it? How are they making sense of the world, right? So it requires um, listening and gracious listening, that you're not just trying to get your point of rebuttal ready, 
but you're first just listening to who they are, right? So how does any of this apply to us as everyday flawed people, right? We're not Aristotle, we're not Martin Luther King Jr., right? We're not any of these amazing persons. Or maybe some of you are, and we just haven't been identified yet. But the question is, how do we actually live this out? And so what I wanted to do is to share with you a couple of um, experiences I've had over the last decade or so. One, I put in the category of a kind of lower bar civic friendship along the lines of Aristotle. So this is without that kind of extra push toward agopic love, but kind of lower hanging fruit. And the other is one that pushes us more toward that agopic love. Um, and what I would suggest is that the, the simpler, less demanding civic friendship can function as training wheels for doing the more demanding agopic love and friendship of pulling people, pulling out the best in people. So the first is a program that I committed, I created for my undergraduates called the Community Host Program. So this is when I was back in New Orleans at my other college. I was teaching social problems, and just about every course that I taught, I did service learning for because I think it's a very good way of reinforcing to young people what we are actually learning in social problems. But I had a sense that something was missing. And so I did this experiment with this community host program. And what I did is I said, you have the choice. You can either do traditional service learning or you can be part of this experimental community host program. And so the community host program consisted of African-American women from the community, from low-income communities, opening their homes to my students for five sessions across the semester. So as we were learning and reading about social problems, the students would go to their home to sit at their feet, to listen to them, and to learn from them in the context of their lives. Now, I have to hasten to say that this was done very carefully. These were women who I knew personally who were friends. And part of the reason they were friends is because uh, I had met them through church. And my church, um, which unfortunately did not make it through the COVID transition, but my church in New Orleans, which was there for about 20 years, was very um, intentional about working across lines of race and class. So it was located in a very low-income, largely African-American neighborhood, but it had everyone from professors to people who had not finished their high school degree. Um, our house, which we still have there in New Orleans, is in that same neighborhood, and our church helped us to build that house. So they got the, the church got the plots of land post-Katrina, and our pastor said to me, um, this is when I was pregnant with our first, I think I could see you all living here. And I kind of looked at him. It's a kind of desolate landscape. And I said, oh, really? Hmm, interesting. Let me pray on that. Um, so I did pray on it, and I did hear God saying, yes, go ahead and live here. So we built the house there um, across the street from us. Another couple from church also built a house down the street where two more houses associated with the church. And so by going, um, we were members there for about 14 years, by in this community, we did become friends with people of very different race and class backgrounds. Um, so we are African-American, but some people lump all African-Americans together. Um, so I do not have any particular skills at living in a very low-income inner-city neighborhood. That's not how I grew up. So that was very much a stretch for us, but it really opened us up to some very rich relationships. 
And so from that came the two women who were the community hosts for my program. So I had known them for years and years, got them stipends for doing the work that they were doing with me, and then students decided you know, that they would do this and they went to their homes. And so I'm gonna share with you some of the reflections of that experience. And I think what you'll find interesting is that threaded throughout these responses, you will see them talking about friendship. They only went to five sessions at the homes of these community hosts. So if we're thinking in terms of traditional friendship, you would think, mm, not really, how can they be your friend? Like you, know, like you were there for five times. Um, but if you're thinking in terms of civic friendship, and so here is where the language differences between English and Greek are really important. Um, you know, so different words for love in Greek that we don't have in English, different kinds of concepts of friendship in Greek that we don't have in English, so it doesn't always translate. But if you're thinking in terms of a, a maybe a kind of more abstract, thinner civic friendship, it makes a lot of sense when you hear this. So Elizabeth says, something that I've come to realize from being a part of this program is that as different as a person's upbringing may be from my own, we can still be friends. I didn't have a bias going in that I couldn't be a friend of a quote-unquote poor person, but I hadn't had the opportunity to sit down and get to know someone living in a different situation like that. There wasn't particularly a time or a place where um, I could do this thing. After spending so much time with Quintesha, this is the community host, I would consider her a friend. So one thing to understand about this whole situation is so they... they um, the reason that I wanted them to do this is because by going to the community host, that brings a, a leveling of the, the, the terms on which they're together. With service learning, inevitably a student is entering that in a kind of superior position. I am coming to serve. I am coming to bring the solutions. Um, in this community host program, they are not bringing any solutions. They instead are the guests. I consider these um, community hosts to be my co-instructors, right? So it's a very different situation there. Um, and as she's saying, there really aren't very many contexts where that kind of interaction can happen. Amina says, there were many things I did enjoy about the community host program. To start off with, we built a family inside Mrs. Quintesh's home. In a world that too often tells us to segregate and that we do not belong together, we were able to create a family of all kinds. We all come from different backgrounds and different economic classes, yet we were able to sit down and talk about our childhoods. We shared intimate stories that have impacted each of our lives. I was able to meet Mrs. Quintessa, Quintesha and three of my classmates on a deeper level and actually get to know them for who they are. It did not matter that Corinne and Mrs. Quintesha are African-American, Scarlett is Dominican, Duncan is white, and I am Palestinian Puerto Rican. It also did not matter that the five of us all come from different economic classes. We sat in that house and talked about real-life problems that are ignored in everyday conversation. Granted, as soon as we walked out of the house, reality hit, and we were no longer in our safe place. However, for those two hours that we were at Mrs. Quintesh's house, nothing else mattered, and we were not different people who could not get along. Laura was more challenged. She says, though it was inspirational to hear about society from her point of view, this is the community host point of view, became challenging at times to know that these things actually occur in real life. When learning about issues in a classroom setting, they seem almost too sad to be true. 
However, hearing about these same things from Robin, the other community host, who has gone through them, make them more realistic and even intimidating, as this can happen to anyone. All issues are definitely real-life cases reminding me that it isn't always sunshine and rainbows for everyone. I definitely enjoyed her optimism, though, and I feel as though everyone should have the same attitude because it is a step in the right direction. So for this student, it was a challenge. You know, sitting in the classroom, you read about difficult things with social problems, you feel kind of sad, but then you move on. But if you are sitting in the house of the person who has actually lived these realities, who is sharing them with you, her situation, her friends, her family, and who has welcomed you into her home and is serving you food, it is a very different situation. It's not something that you can just toss off or intellectualize, right? So it was challenging in all of the right ways. And the final one I'll share is from Lewis. So Lewis is thinking about, I'd asked them at the end, do you think that you will continue to try to cultivate these kinds of friendships across lines of race and class when you leave this program? So Lewis says, even with the best intentions in mind, the question of whether or not I will develop enduring relationships with people in low-income communities is one that cannot be easily answered. College is the only reason I have an entry point into Quintessa's community. If I had not chosen to take this class, the meetings, revelations, and all the good times I shared with Contesha would never have come to pass. If I truly intend to create enduring friendships and relationships with people living in low-income situations, I will need to change my current level of outgoingness and get involved with the community. This is easier said than done. This past summer, I worked in one of two offices every day of the week. I saw the same people, sat in the same chair, and hung out with the same friends on the weekends. As I trudged through endless nine-to-five shifts, I learned how easy it was to become locked in a routine that would prevent new interactions and connections from being made. Quite honestly, it scared me. I decided that I wanted to have a job that was a little less safe, so that I had to exist outside of my comfort of the nine-to-five schedule model. What I can do is work towards expanding my social comfort zone with every new acquaintance and not shy away from opportunities to make new friends. I intend to do this. So Lewis is being realistic about the effort that it will actually take to do that. Um, as an example, this big shift that I've just made to Charlottesville, very different inner city New Orleans from Charlottesville. Um, I cannot express to you the depth of the differences. Um, so when I was living in New Orleans and part of that church, I had built in those connections across race and class. They're not very easy to get with sincere, real relationships. I wasn't on a, a mission trip or a, a service day or anything like that. These were my neighbors. These were um, the people at my church. And the house that we lived in is about a six-block walk from the church. So it was all very, very integrated. So I think Lewis is really on to something. You know, it really is not an easy matter to do something like that. There are very few places we have a very class and race segregated society. Very few places where you're going to get those real relationships to be able to cultivate anything looking like um, the best kind of civic friendship. All right, the second thing that I will share pushes us more toward that agape-based friendship that King was talking about. And so this one has to do 
with the homeschool circles that I was part of in Louisiana when we were there. So I homeschooled our daughters from the very beginning, um, starting when they were two and ending when my oldest finished ninth grade. And then they are now in a classical Christian school in Charlottesville. Our last year of homeschooling, my daughter had to switch at the last minute um, last spring. And so she was with a group that she hadn't known before, but they were pretty similar to others in our homeschooling circles, which is to say that they were extremely conservative, very heavily Republican, um, and very, very different from us racially. So majority white, conservative, Republican. And so she would go to her groups and she would hear political talk, which was quite different than what she would hear in our house. So suffice it to say, you know, we were very different kinds of people. The only reason that we were together is because we were all committed to classical and Christian education for our children. That was the only thing that brought us together. There would have been no other reason for me to be in relationship with these other mothers. So one day, one of the mothers invited the whole group out um, to her farm where they raise cattle, which they eat and they sell some of it. There's a huge bonfire. This is right in the, the midst of the worst of the COVID pandemic. There is no vaccine yet. Um, and so we're sitting outside at the bonfire roasting marshmallows and they're telling me about the, the cattle that they keep and so on and so forth. So very kind of rural Louisiana experience um, and very different from my kind of urban black New Orleans experience. And again, it is only the classical and the Christian commitments that bring us together. All right. So these are not deep friends. You know, this is, we are all homeschooling our kids together and we're committed to the faith. That's the only reason. Fast forward, we move. And then out of the blue, I get an email from the mother um, who owned the farm who had us over. And she says, I'd really like to get access to your um, materials on the black intellectual tradition. And I think, really? That's interesting. So she had taken it upon herself to gather together a group of homeschool mothers to do this reading group um, using the materials. I have these materials that I've put together um, for anyone who wants them, pre-recorded lectures, readings, questions, so that people can put together a reading group. And it puts black intellectuals into conversation with classic and canonical writers on a variety of topics. And so they wanted to do this group. And I said, wow, that is amazing. Like, you know, in the midst of, you know, kind of all of the political clamor and accusations of CRT this and CRT that, um, not that what I have is CRT at all, um, but it was going to get them reading about African-American history, about issues of injustice, racial injustice, um, that, you know, I had no idea that this was something that they would be interested in. So I gave them access. They found out that I would be coming back to New Orleans in May and invited me out to the farm. So I went out to the farm and they served an absolute feast of cattle that they had raised and slaughtered themselves at the farm, deer that had been hunted nearby and turned into deer sausage, and a whole other you know, group of just amazing cuisine that makes me miss Louisiana. So we had a lovely, lovely time. I told them more about Nyansa Classical Community, where I work with um, largely low-income and African-American students in the community, not just in New Orleans, but in other um, parts of the country as well. They were very supportive. 
Some have actually financially supported it since then. I kept getting, I keep getting updates actually from them because they're going through the material now. So the mother um, who's organizing it said, this is so good. It's so hard to read about all of, you know, what has gone on, but I'm so glad we're doing it. And I'm going to have my high school son do this as part of his study next year because I just want him to have this material. I have to wonder if there would have been as much openness to this if we had not had a relationship previously, if there had not been a way for them to get to know me personally um, and to be open to that kind of experience, to stretching themselves, and so on. I've had similar experiences with other teachers from classical Christian schools who have walked through that process with me with some of this material, where, again, I know from talking to them that we are very different politically, we're very different socially, on all sorts of ways, but we are joined in terms of the faith and joined in terms of the importance of classical education. And that is what brings us together. And if we didn't have that glue, there would be no reason that we would ever be talking to each other. And so that's a very, very important part um, of cultivating that level of friendship with people who are quite, quite different on a lot of of different topics. And I won't go into the topics because I don't want to get off on a political thing, um, but suffice it to say that we have very different political views. Um, but we are able to talk together and be in harmony through the faith and through classical education. So I wanted to conclude with um, just thinking about, especially as people who are working with Christian students, what is it that we might be able to do to foster various kinds of um, levels of friendship, civic friendship at a lower level, or the higher, more demanding agape-based friendship that Martin Luther King Jr. is proposing. So there are a couple of things. Um, you may not necessarily want to create a community host program. There, there's a lot that was in that that I think could go very wrong if it's done the wrong way. Um, but are there contexts in which it would be possible that it would work in your context? to bring your students into real relationship with people who are extraordinarily different from themselves in terms of race and class, and where it's not a mission trip. It's not a service trip. But there is some, there is some space for an ongoing relationship that is real. It's kind of, it's a lot harder to do than it is to say. But it would be a tremendous gift if there were a way that we could create those spaces for that to happen. The second is, I wonder if there is um, time and space for both undergraduate and graduate students to encourage them toward reading classic literature. So you might think, oh, this is just a self-serving thing to promote the book, right? No, it's not only that. Partly, but not only. <laughs> so really, though, um, let's think about this. Let's think about um, Jeff's talk last night right? Jeff is brilliant. He has a degree in theology, which I am in awe of. He is going through, you know, the Russian classics, right? You get a Jeff Harden um, because he's doing all of that reading. He is immersed in the classics, right? Not only theology, but also literature. That's how you get that kind of intellectual. How about Chesterton? I understand we have a Chesterton house here. I think Chesterton read a few classics. Um, 
right? If we're going to name our fellowships after Chesterton, might we want to form intellectuals who were educated the way he was? C.S. Lewis, he read a classic or two, right? Um, so these are people we revere. So if we want, if we're going to put those folks as models, I think it behooves us to think about the kind of education that they had. I have spent, you know, the last decade or so trying to catch up on a classical education that I never had. Um, someone mentioned yesterday the idea of having a fourth grade, you know, theological education, right? That needs to be remedied, but I also think that this reading of the classics or the lack of reading of the classics needs to be remedied. Why? This is a millennia-long conversation about the biggest questions you could ever ask. What does it mean to be human? What is freedom? You know, how do we live together, right? What is a good society? What is a good life? I would hope that we would want our students in our ministries to be asking these questions and equipped to have some kind of intelligent conversation about them. That happens by having a very robust foundation in classic literature as well as in theology, right? All of this is very important. It would be a tremendous service to create space for that to happen. It's not happening anywhere else, right? Um, it's certainly not happening in our universities. I'm quite sure of that. There's a handful of new kind of classical universities and colleges where that is happening, but for the most part, it is not happening. Um, so what could that look like to encourage? Um, so Cam was leading the humanities group when I was here, right? So I know that you do things like that. But could we open that up to encouraging and creating a space and curating readings that we're reading very widely? Literature, philosophy, history, going back for millennia, that is structured around these key questions. If you could do that, you would be doing an incredible service to your students and to the future of academia. When you don't get that as an undergraduate or a graduate student, then you turn into someone like me, who is scrambling around trying to find every little reading group they can and trying to fit every minute of every day with audiobooks, trying to listen to as much as I can, right? And while that is an option, it is not optimal. You know, why not get this done as undergrads and graduate students? Um, so those are, are some of the suggestions I will leave you with, and I thank you very much for your time. Thanks for joining us. If you enjoyed today's podcast, be sure to subscribe and give us a rating on your favorite podcast app. Also, be sure to check out our upcoming events on upperhouse.org. The Upwards podcast is supported by the Stephen and Laurel Brown Foundation. It is produced at Upper House in Madison, Wisconsin. Hosted by Dan Hummel, music by Micah Bear, audio engineering by Jesse Koopman, and graphic design by Madeline Ramsey. Please follow us on social media, including Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn with the handle at Upper House UW.